Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. On this week's episode of the E3 Podcast, I am really excited to have John on. John works for Zender. And as you all know, I've been talking a lot about indoor air quality lately and how important this is, especially in high performance houses. And so I wanted to have him on specifically to talk more about this concept and idea that we have, um, most of us signed on and agreed to, uh, but, but want to kind of break it down for everybody else. So John, tell us who you are, where you're from, what you're doing, how you got into, uh, working with Zender. Sure. First of all, thanks, Emily, for having me on. And uh, I'm thrilled I, uh, to talk about the stuff that I'm passionate about. And uh, it's nice to meet you as a result of doing this. Um, so I was trained as an architect in Boston at a small uh, college called Wentworth Institute of Technology and was one of the first um, our, our class was one of the first graduating classes to get a professional architecture degree from there. Uh, very technology oriented, very construction oriented. So it kind of flew in the face of the typical stereotype of architects and builders not getting along because a lot of the students there were spent most of their teenage years being builders or working for their dad or something like that. So got really grounded in construction technology, which was very, very satisfying to me. So after graduate school, I, I had my own practice, a sole practitioner, um, mostly residential additions and, and new homes and things like that, which does not position you to be very varied when an economic downturn uh, happens like it did in 2009, which at the time I was um, designing, uh, getting ready to design a home for myself in Massachusetts, where I'm from, on the North Shore in a beautiful little town called Rockport on Cape Ann. And so there was virtually no work with my clients. And so I actually got a job with a weatherization agency and crawled around in attics uh, inspecting for cellulose and vermiculite and learning about air sealing. And um, it turns out that while there was a ton of money to do weatherization, um, there wasn't a lot of effort to make these buildings really, really high performance. I mean, a little bit of money went a little bit of the ways, but once you put some cellulose in the walls of these old houses, that's it. They're never gonna fix them again. And I became attracted to the passive house movement, realizing how much energy could be saved on the heating and cooling side of things um, and lowering the carbon footprint. And so the house that I designed for myself was now all of a sudden a, a double stud wall, R40 wall, R60 roof, you know, airtight, air barrier at the ceiling underneath the raised heel trusses, all that sort of stuff. Basically what we call a pretty good house um, in Maine uh, and in Massachusetts, the sort of um, not necessarily achieving exact passive house criteria, but very, very close to it. And so by so doing, you can't use bathroom fans anymore. And so I became intrigued, like, well, how am I going to do this ventilation system? And as I approached Zender for uh, a quote for my building, lo and behold, they were hiring. And so here's an opportunity to get out of weatherization, to get into very, very fascinating buildings. I've worked on some of the coolest passive house buildings in the country uh, because Zender is kind of the darling of the passive house movement and the recovery efficiency is so high and the filtration is so good and the controls are so um, sophisticated for those who want to take advantage of those controls. They're just in a lot of those buildings. So, so for seven years now, I've been working on almost a thousand uh, projects, some just sort of straightforward spec houses, but a lot of, you know, really cool multifamilies in Brooklyn and Manhattan and uh, custom homes that really have been pushing the boundaries to save energy on the heating and cooling side. And it isn't just about the energy as we spoke before we started recording. It's often tremendously enhanced comfort, no more drafts, no more radiating your body temperature to a cold surface, like a big sheet of excuse me, a big sheet of glass because it's um, double glazed when it should be triple and things like that. The quietness inside a building. So it's really, there's so many things going for it that uh, I just wish it would, would take off a little bit more. I mean, if it is in our world, but it's the broad picture across the country. Passive house is almost unknown, but that's changing. So that's good. Yeah. Um, and I think people are starting to get it. I think there's a 
the general population, I feel like is a little afraid of passive house, right? Like they're still just like, Oh, that's, you know, super crazy over the top, whatever. And honestly, our building codes are getting a lot closer to passive house levels. So it's really not that big of a stretch, but it's a matter of getting people out of the, we've been building this way for 25 years. And, you know, one of those things I always love to say is people need to breathe. Buildings need to dry. Right. So they're, you know, the, and, and once you've kind of cut off the air infiltration to the building, you need to provide fresh air ventilation. But the, the people who are like, oh, it needs to breathe. It needs to be leaky. I'm like, you know, if you've ever been in your attic, you would not climb up there and say, oh yeah, the air coming from this space is definitely healthy. But that when it's filtrating through your building is a lot of times where it's coming from your dirty basement or your filthy attic space. It's not coming directly from outside. Right. And so then we get into these ERVs and HRVs, depending on where you are to kind of help you get direct from outside fresh air without having a window open, right? Because I'm in Maine. I'm not going to open the window on February 15th when it's negative 15 degrees outside. Like it's just not going to (laughs) happen. And Mm -hmm. similar when you get into hot and humid climates, like they got to keep that humidity out because they've got to dehumidify to handle it. And so if you can maintain some of the moisture that you don't have in the building with your drier air when you're doing your exchanges. Although uh, maybe you can talk more about this and Zender is probably one of the only ones that does it, but they don't, uh, ERVs seem to be very prevalent uh, in, in Northern climates, you know, in cold climates, they always seem to be programmed for cold climate aspects. They must have hot climate ventilation systems too, right? (laughs) Yep. So that's a whole interesting topic, ERV versus HRV. And I think in 10 years ago, people assumed there was a Mason-Dixon line above which HRVs would be more common in colder climates and below which ERVs would be more common because of the moisture issue. And so for those who don't know, an HRV is a heat exchanger that only transfers heat, that is thermal energy, from a warm airstream to a colder airstream. It doesn't matter matter whether it's summer or winter, whatever the warmer airstream in is, has a higher amount of thermal energy. And as it passes by a highly conductive membrane, which is what an HRV core is made of, lots of plastic, highly conductive surfaces, if the other airstream is cooler, just like when you touch something that's cooler, it conducts through there. And so if there's no temperature difference, there's no conduction, there's no heat transfer. So it relies on a temperature difference. It doesn't rely on a heating element. It doesn't rely on a hydronic coil. It's simply two airstreams passing by each other across uh, a vapor impermeable membrane, hundreds of them with lots of surface area. So an HRV does that and that's great. And as a result, you can see recovery effectiveness uh, numbers something like 95%, depending on the airflow and things like that. Now, ERV does exactly the same thing in terms of doing heat transfer, but the material inside the core is a different material. It's actually typically something with um, microscopic perforations in it. And those perforations are so small, they actually allow water vapor molecules to pass through if there's a difference in the concentration of those vapor molecules. And those holes are so small that neither air molecules nor liquid water molecules can pass across that. So for example, in the summertime, when it's relatively humid outside and warm and relatively cool and dry inside because you've done some sort of tempering of the air, the warmer airstream and the more humid airstream is going to dump a proportion of that humidity and heat into the outgoing airstream. So instead of bringing in outdoor temperature air, it's been cooled off a little bit. In winter, when you have enormous delta Ts in Maine between your room temperature and outdoor temperature, there's a lot of heat that can be recovered. And what's interesting is that that can go, the heat recovery and moisture recovery can go in opposite directions. So if it's cool and clammy outside, high humidity but low temperature, and that's very common in like Raleigh uh, in the Carolinas and things like that in fall and winter, You can get moisture recovery by preserving indoor moisture by driving it back into the incoming airstream, but actually get heat recovery by warming that airstream. It's just fascinating how it all works, but it does it by itself. There's no complicated technology. Really the technology of ERVs has been resolved in terms of fans, 
in terms of insulating the, the casing in which it all comes in. It's really now more about the controls and being able to boost it when you want uh, demand control, high levels of CO2, um, and integrating with other systems. I, I'm not a huge advocate of advo uh, connecting ERVs to heating systems. The amount of air you need for heating and cooling is, is drastically more than what you need for ventilation. And so many ERVs and HRVs have been tied to heating systems that we think, oh, they're supposed to be together. And we'd say HVAC, but the V is really separate. The, the needs of ventilation are different than what heating and cooling are. And if we're trying to make energy efficient houses by not using our heating and cooling so much, why should the ductwork for that system, five, six, eight, ten times the amount of air, also be used for an HRV or an ERV? So all that rambling is to say that now I recommend ERVs pretty much everywhere except the Pacific Northwest and California. There's definite benefits to moisture recovery in cool, dry climates um, and in hot, humid climates. So ERVs turn out to be annually a better idea. Yeah, and I think that you're right. It was a lot of conventional wisdom that you would only use an HRV here. There were people who were concerned about it freezing up and, and all of those things. Yeah. But um, I was talking with another mechanical engineer and she put a Zender in their house and they put a HRV core in originally. And she mm -hmm. said it was so dry. I mean, they were just constantly, you know, with the hand lotion and everything. And so she called Zender and she's like, can you send us an ERV core? Like this is like, this isn't working. And they sent her an ERV core and she was like, within hours. It was, you know, amazing how different it was. And so, you know, we often think in this environment, we forget that like the outside air tends to be really dry when it's cold and that is really uncomfortable and not the whole purpose, but one of the purposes of a ventilation system is to maintain the comfort in your space. And so if it's driving air changes because everything is closed, it's wintertime, whatever, and it's not able to do anything other than dump drier air from outside into your space, eventually that's going to cause comfort issues for, for people. So we've moved to only installing ERVs as well. Um, I don't even know when the last time was I put an HRV in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not prudent in an airtight house. It's not prudent in this climate zone, really, because especially in an airtight building, if your thermostat setting has been met by proper envelope design, proper shading, um, and therefore your air conditioner is not running in the summer, you don't have the additional benefit of drying that air conditioners can provide. So even with an ERV, that can be a pro problem because airtight buildings, you really need to think about shading when it's sunny out. And if you're in an urban environment and can't encroach beyond your property line, it's really difficult to actually get that to work. So I look forward to better glazing technologies, you know, the electrochromic, chromoelectric glass, whatever they call that stuff that can actually change its opacity based on the sun that's hitting it. That, that I see as a way to offset that overheating problem that we see in airtight passive style buildings. Um, yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I just had a conversation the other day with a, another colleague of mine um, who is not a builder. She, she's helping with editorial stuff and, mm -hmm. um, she is, uh, she, she was fascinated there. They moved to new England. They hadn't previously lived here. They moved to new England and she would see the shutters and she's like, Oh, you know, well, they, they should close or whatever. And I said, you know, 95%, 98% probably of those shutters are just decorative now. Right. They had a function previously, but it got me thinking the other day. Right. So shading devices are always better on the exterior. Cause if you can keep the window from getting hot, then it doesn't translate that heat into the space. So shading devices are good on the interior of the window, but they don't, you know, once that window is hot and it's warm behind there, it's still going to be warm. The, that heat is already in your space. And it made me think like all those shutters back in the day when they actually functioned and closed and kept the heat off the spaces. It's like, ah, oh, we need to go back to some of the old ways we used to do things like a functional shutter who would have thought, yeah. but again, it goes back to, you know, maintenance and operable and remembering to close those things. And, you know, there's just so, so much to it. So um, you're making me think of like when I've traveled around Europe and see those rolling metal shutters that still exist on the outside of urban buildings. And maybe it's a lifestyle issue where, I mean, of course people commute like crazy there too, but maybe in a more pedestrian kind of lifestyle, it doesn't take so long to get home. You spend a little more time getting your house ready for, for bedtime and having those shutters. Um, 
but yeah, I, I totally see how that can work. Of course, they can be automated too, but I bet it's not too long before the glass technology allows you to, you know, we have very a lot of difficulty shading east and west windows because the sun angle is so low and no overhang is going to solve that. Right. And so maybe, you know, we've got different solar heat glaze, uh, solar heat gain coefficients, but even that doesn't always, doesn't always work. So, and you have to know what you're doing with tuning the building to, to do that. So I think those kinds of glazing opportunities will help so that the, um, the reality of ventilation 24 seven and the reality of the fact that you can't get hundred percent recovery efficiency, whether it's heat or humidity means that you can be bringing in more moisture than you want to. And so in tandem with an air, air conditioner working and keeping your uh, solar loads down, I think that's going to be a, a, a way to tune these buildings and avoid the overheating problems we've been seeing. Yeah. I think also too, that people don't um, understand how the humidity uh, is related to the comfort in the space too. Right. Mm. Because, um, you know, we're even starting to see here in Maine, I, I feel like when I first moved here, um, my husband is from Maine. So I originally grew up in Pennsylvania. And so when we moved to Maine, um, I feel like the summer never got humid enough or really hot enough. And it was the joke here. Like we don't air condition in Maine. Everybody just opens their windows. But in the last five years, it started to get really humid in the summertime. I wouldn't say that the temperatures are that hot but it gets getting really humid and it's making us now start to think about dehumidifiers because we don't have to cool as much if we just dehumidify a little bit. And maybe all we really need is dehumidification in some cases, you know, if you keep those moisture levels down. And so, but while we're talking about moisture levels and keeping it down, this is a big uh, push. And, And so since you do a lot with passive house, you've had more experience with this, right? Passive house does not want you to put in a bathroom fan because they don't want you to put another hole in the building envelope. Um, but we get a lot of pushback here on ERVs that, um, one, I think one of the biggest problems which isn't a problem with Zender because Zender sends people out to commission their systems, which is awesome. Um, but can be a problem with other, uh, installs of other ERVs, which is if somebody doesn't uh, come and commission the system, you know, how do you really know, uh, if you're getting it and that some of them have probably not been installed as properly as they wish they would be and haven't exhausted all the moisture out of a bathroom. But so there's, there's this constant question, like, is it okay to, to vent my bathroom with my ERV? Um, and I'm in the passive house, community, uh, box where I say it's perfectly fine as long as it's done correctly. And that we commission the system and we make sure that everything is working properly. Um, but I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit because in passive house, you literally can't. So you you've had to make your, your ERV systems or HRV systems work with that. Um, so I, um, for those who are a little bit unclear exactly why the passive house doesn't allow it, I don't think it has ever said, um, uh, well, the reason you can't use a bath fan is that when you do a blower door test, you'll fail. Um, and probably you could design a house that if the only penetration was the bath fan exhaust, maybe that would work. But the reality is there's no heat recovery there. And so there's a lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so why not, instead of having a central return that just pulls from any old place, combine all the bathrooms and make that be the source, uh, the return air from the bathrooms, make that be the source of the thermal energy you've already paid to heat or cool or dehumidify or humidify that air. And so when you turn your bath fan on, if you have a bathroom exhaust fan, however many CFM leave the building, that's wasted dollars. And as I always tell at the Lunch and Learns I give, Where's that air coming from that's that's replacing it? If your bath fan is actually working and pushing 80 CFM out of the building, you've paid for it. Now you've said goodbye to it. And now 80 CFM therefore must be leaking into your building through uncontrolled sources. It might be the attic. It might be a crawl space where there's dead critters and moisture and spiders. It might be through a thousand different places in your building envelope where nobody bothered to take the Tyvek or something like that. So that is not controlled ventilation. So... Um, yeah, it's a no-no. Bath fans ultimately just waste energy. And yes, they're a low first cost, but you're not getting any benefit. Turning on a bath fan does not make the CO2 level in your bedroom in the opposite corner of the house get better. Not at all. A properly balanced and commissioned ERV 
can actually do that. So you're doing several things at once, keeping humidity in check, exhausting the bathroom that the code asks you to do anyway, but also trying to keep CO2 levels down with the supply air that um, comes into the house in a very controlled way. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's always really interesting to to kind of go through that challenge. And, you know, part of the pushback, I wonder, and, and I wonder from your experience in working with other people, is part of the pushback, the fact that you have a ton of ductwork running to different places, right? So, so is it, is it simply a, we're not doing enough in the architecture world to, to provide coordination for these things, right? So I really hate in a project when I don't know where, where most things are going to go. And then all of a sudden we've got a soffit or a chase somewhere in our design that we didn't plan for, you know, is, is it really, is some of the pushback just, that they don't understand enough about it to get the ventilation and the ductwork where it needs to go without creating issues? Is, is that a holdback? I, I can't really speak for like all the architects coming out of architecture school, but I do know it's true that most architecture students aren't getting enough training on mechanical systems. There are courses in it for sure. And some schools are better than others for sure. Um, but back in the day, I, I, there was a mechanical course, but it, was, it, was, it didn't really get you thinking about how do I accommodate this space-wise. So as a result, I do think that there's less of an engineering background than a lot of architects. And as a result, they rely on the mechanical engineer to do the work. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen uh, diagrams of ERVs shown on a floor plan that simply don't fit. And, and no architect would design a garage that's six feet wide for a car that's seven feet wide. But I see that a lot in how mechanical designs, well, they just, they just put a square and say that's the ERV, but it might be overlapping a partition. And that partition is supposed to go up to the ceiling. So how does that actually work? So, and now with a lot of slab on grade construction with uh, under slab insulation and perhaps, perhaps cathedral ceilings, ducts are, can be a challenge, but they're a challenge whether you're using a, a heat pump that's ducted or a ventilation system that's ducted. Um, and that has to be thought of in advance. I applaud anybody that thinks about using open web joists to save on the labor of, um, of not having to cut holes in, in all the duct work and the constraints that, that engineered lumber and, and kiln dried lumber uh, have. But yeah, so open web joists are a great thing, but also just thinking in advance about what do I need to run through here? But you get so far through schematic design into design development, it's, it's, it's falls by the wayside all too often. So let's fix that, shall we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you know Christoph Irwin at all with positive oh, energy, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. but Christoph once said to me that a truly integrated design process is not without your mechanical team. Right? right. So we always say, oh, we practice integrated design. You know, we bring the builder on early, early on. But, okay. you know, we also try to get our builder to get our mechanical people, you know, because MEP and residential isn't always a thing. It's not necessarily a thing, hardly at all here in mm in Maine. And so a lot of times you're working with a subcontractor who does a lot of these installations and there are good ones out there. And so what we usually try to do is make sure we know all of that stuff while we're working with the builder. So, you know, and a lot of builders will work with the same, you know, installer over and over again. So it's like, okay, we're going to work with builder Joe, builder Joe works with, uh, with mechanical guy, Bob, we're going to talk to mechanical guy, Bob, because the other, the other thing that has been getting better, I would say, is that they also don't know how to address a low load home, right? So I'm sure you see this in passive house all the time. It's like, well, you know, I've got to have all this distribution. I've got to have all this stuff. And, um, you know, uh, one of the passive house consultants that I worked with when I was in New York and Rochester a lot, um, he had technically, I think he had two heat pumps. He had one upstairs and one on the, on the main level. And he was like, I don't know if in the two years we've lived here, the one on the second floor we've ever turned on, like we just leave it off. And he's like, and we put a, we put a thermostat in, you know, our kid's bedroom, which is in the Northeast corner, you know, the, the one place where if it's going to be cold, that's against farthest away from the heat pump or whatever. And it was still 68 degrees in that room. And so there's, the traditional way of dealing with heating. And then the, they'll say, oh, well, you're going to put in a ventilation system and that'll circulate the air. And it's like, well, that's 
not exactly how that works. <laughs> you're exactly right, Emily. Um, <laughs> people who should know better will sometimes make the mistake that an ERV will distribute the heating and cooling um, effectively. And I'm, I'm here to say <laughs> that that would work in a trailer, maybe. Um, and I mean like a tiny house trailer, but any house that has different conditions of solar gain, for instance, on the north side, and therefore tend to not warm up. If you have a ductless mini split system, and you're hoping that that air gets distributed by the ERV, you're not realizing that the airflow is going in the wrong direction. So the air will be pumped into the bedrooms as supply air. And that is necessarily just because of rea the reality of physics, cooler than your thermostat temperature, right? In wintertime, outdoor temperature, let's just say in Maine, the design temperature is probably zero or minus five, but let's keep it at zero. Indoor temperature at 70, that delta T of 70 means that even with the best ERV or HRV that you can get, very high recovery effectiveness, that supply temperature is coming in 60, 62, 64, 65 degrees. That's not going to heat a room. And that's all that's going to fill a room when there's supply air coming in from the ERV. So how can you heat a room when heating air is you know, over 100 degrees? It just doesn't work. So you really, I mean, probably we're seeing a lot more duck dead mini splits as a result of some of these mistakes that are being made. But in that house that you're referring to, it just so happens to be oriented in such a way that and insulated in such a way so that the heat loss is so slow um, that that it can stay comfortable. And by the way, I don't have a heat pump supply in the bedroom of the house that I designed. It's just ventilation air and it's just fine. So the heat loss is so slow, but you got to be really careful. North facing uh, bedrooms in this climate zone, they might need supplemental heat. A three foot strip of um, electric resistance uh, is not a scandal anymore the way it used to be. I'm sure you're familiar with geologics work and how they have no primary heating system except the sun and a backup strip of resistance throughout the house in a lot of their projects. And that's, that's great. I mean, there's a lot of mini splits too, but uh, probably because of the cooling thing you're talking about and dehumidification that, that we're starting to see even in mid coast Maine. Yeah. That, that, that seems to be more of a, a thing, you know, recently. And it's mm -hmm. like, it feels so backwards to when I first started to practice in the state of Maine, where it was like, oh, cooling, summertime humidification. Like we we don't we don't worry about any of that. But it's like, oh well, you know what? Maybe we really no, need to start doing that now. You know, and and I love the geologic houses where they've just really taken into account, like what can we get out of what we have naturally. And then how do we back it up? We often will put in uh, backup. We'll wire for backup electricity electric resistance heat but we won't put them in and we'll say okay like let's test this out if you need it wires here is really simple fast install right if we got to rip apart the wall and the wire's not there that's a problem but you know we also don't always want to put them in if we're pretty sure you're not going to need it but you're not sure or um uh, in our cases depending on how someone finances the project as uh the um banking industry is still a, a little bit gun shy on this whole, like no heating in bedrooms kind of thing. And they're just like, Oh, you know, no, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to not do, do that. Like we need to make sure that these people will have heat. And so then sometimes we have to put them in and they'll, you know, they'll put them in and they'll say like, I've never once turned it on. Um, you know, it's not been an issue. So, so sometimes funding institutions have a pushback on, on heating systems because mm -hmm. they don't understand the concept of these, you know, low load homes. They've never questioned a ventilation system. And that makes me feel like, uh, you know, well, we should be questioning this. Like, why don't we understand the mechanical sections of the code more than we do? And, you know, why, why is ASHRAE 62.2 the minimum standard? Like, is that enough? Like, are we doing enough? Is it too much? Is it overventilation? Right. So it's just, for me, that's become, you know, the, since the beginning of 2020, I mean, even before we were doing them before that, Certainly, and I know that that was important doing doing uh, ventilation systems in high performance homes because that's what we've been building for for a number of years. So really, we've been doing it since 2015, knowing we need to do it. But I would say the last year and a half has really made it 
in the forefront of more people, you know, the, the general public, they were really concerned about the virus in their homes and what do we do for ventilation, the virus and this work from home idea. And so we haven't had any pushback in it because we just do it anyway. Cause this is, you know, you're going to build a high performance home. You, you just have to, right. Can't defy, defy the, the laws of what we're trying to do here. Like we're not trying to build you something that's not durable. Um, but I find the mindset has shifted and more people are really interested in knowing the air quality, knowing what's in their building materials, like what really is in that building material, you know, cause we used to tell people, um, one thing that they could kind of understand, which was after you move into your house that first year, you're going to need to run your ventilation system for longer because the first year you got to get rid of everything that came in with your building materials and moisture. People seem to really understand moisture, but it's like, now they're really diving in. Like what is in moisture resistant drywall and what is in the paint that we just painted? And like, how do we walk in your house and it doesn't smell like anything? in here. Like, how, how's that a thing? I took, um, a client on a, uh, a new client to see an existing client, uh, so that they could hear about their experience, you know, building and, and the house that they lived in and everything. And he's like, it just smells so fresh in your house. <laughs> I think that's what we need to do for a lot of lay people, whether it's the lending sector or the building inspectors to see that these houses really are incredible. Um, about that pesky pandemic, it is fascinating to, uh, are you familiar with Dr. Joseph Allen, the studies that have been done through the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and Syracuse University. So there's important information about CO2 levels and cognitive functioning and all that. And then all that was eclipsed by the, um, the pandemic and concerns about ventilation. And while it is true that better air movement will reduce uh, contagion or, or whatever you call that, transmission, um, that has a huge energy penalty. So by ventilating just to meet ASHRAE standards, um, whether it's seven and a half CFM per person plus between one and three CFM per hundred square feet, that oftentimes produces a perfectly adequate ventilation rate, unless you always cook with a lot of garlic and, and have 16 people over uh, emitting CO2. And if your ventilation system can't be adjustable to, to change that the way, I'm not gonna make this an ad, but Zender's systems, you know, there's varying speeds that you can control either by carbon dioxide sensors or just manually controlling that. You need to be flexible for those different uses and, and accommodating that. But the critical thing to understand that is you simply can't double the ventilation rate in a home without experiencing having to make up for that extra air that comes in that isn't room temperature. And so <clears throat> if the guidelines are going to be to radically increase ventilation rates, several things have to be kept in mind. Buildings that aren't energy efficient are gonna pay an even higher penalty, which is in places where fuel is expensive, that's terrible. And the other thing is the ductwork to accommodate that simply isn't there in existing buildings. It was sized for what it is. You can't just triple the rate because it's like pushing too much water through a hose. You just can't do it eventually. So that hasn't been met yet. That's a struggle that we're still trying to figure out, but um, it does raise the concept of pre-planning for new construction for a wide range of flow rates. And that makes me think of a question that a customer asked me last week, and that is um, Fias now insists, rightly so, that when you use a, a exhaust device, whether it's a dryer or a range hood, or something else, um, you can't have a pressure imbalance greater than five pascals when that thing is running. Now, five pascals is virtually nothing. Uh, if, if the blower door test that we do on our buildings at 50 pascals replicates a 20 mile per hour breeze, five pascals is so tiny. Um, but depressurization is bad, so you don't wanna cause anything to come back into the house. So. The, the concept of what, how does an ERV interface with a range hood always comes up with customers and like, oh, can it just be my makeup air system for that? And most of the time, the answer is no, a solid no, because range hoods also, like heating systems, are many times the flow rate, in most cases, many times the flow rate of the ventilation rate of a house. So if you only need 100 CFM in a modest size house, nobody makes 100 CFM range hood. They're always 
at least closer to 200, and in custom homes can be four, six, 800 CFM. So drastic depressurization. And so you either introduce makeup air that's cold and you have to reheat it, or you have an enormous energy penalty by having a resistance heater or a coil of some kind to warm up that air. So the customer asked, is there something that the ERV can do to help make up with this modest kitchen hood, how to do that? And it turns out you can do something. With a Zender ERV, it has four speeds. Um, the highest speed is intended for the boost mode, which is not intended to be run a lot of the time. The lowest speed is called away. And so that's for when there's no occupancy, but there's still things like carpets off-gassing or pets that are at home. And then there's two intermediate speeds. Um, and we typically take the higher of those speeds and make that the speed for the continuous operation of the system. But it turns out that if you use the lower speed for that, and, and these speeds can all be adjusted. So I say it's a lower speed, but it's just, um, I won't get in the weeds about that, but we set the ventilation rate to be at the uh, second of the four speeds. And then the next higher speed, we changed to be wildly imbalanced such that there was as much supply air as you could deliver at that speed, but the same amount of exhaust air as you had at the previous speed. So now if you only ran that, that would be a bad idea because you'd have all supply air, cold air in Maine in the winter, hardly enough exhaust air tempering it to make it uh, a balanced and do heat recovery. But if the range hood is 150 CFM in the other part of the house, now at least you're getting lack of depressurization. So that's the first thing by the same airstream coming in through the supply uh, of the ERV to match what's being exhausted by the range hood. And some heat recovery. I don't know exactly how much yet. If the system's balanced, you're getting 80, 85, 90% of the heat back. But if the supply air ramps up and the exhaust doesn't ramp up, that drops precipitously. It's important that it not drops so much that cold air runs through your uninsulated ventilation ducts because you don't really need to vent insulate those ducts. So is this appropriate for the level of conversation of this Absolutely. podcast? Okay, just checking. I, didn't want to I mean, you're going to have lost some people who okay. listen right now who are like, we don't know what you're talking about. Okay. But I have a big contingent of builders who also listen to the podcast oh, good. Um, who who uh, we love to debate this stuff. So, oh, you know, good, good. Right so, on. so that's great. You so can get in the weeds a little bit. That's you can manually control your range hood with a switch that also makes the ERV go into an imbalanced mode in higher speed to offset the depressurization of a range hood. Then the remaining highest speed that Zender has for its, for its ERVs can be a timed automatic boost. So when you go to the bathroom or there's a, you take a shower or you're having a party and there's a lot of CO2 in the house, you can press a, a momentary contact switch that we provide and the system stays in balance but ramps up to a very high speed. In effect, changing the air exchange rate so that CO2s and pollutants don't, aren't a problem. But I think it's a clever solution, this intermediate fan speed that goes into imbalanced mode. You can't do it with a 400 CFM range hood, but with a lower speed range hood, you actually can start thinking about your ERV as a makeup air system with the caveat that you have to pay real close attention to what your supply temperature is coming into the building. Our plastic ducts are intended, don't need to be insulated because ventilation air with high heat recovery is pretty much close to room temperature. So condensation is not an issue. But if you're now dumping really cold main Rustic County air into your space, just you might have to insulate those ducts and think about that beforehand. Yeah, no, that's, that's such a good point. Honestly, mm -hmm. if you have a 400 CFM uh, fan, you probably have a gas range and you probably need makeup air anyway, just because, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're adding a whole lot of extra things to it. But mm -hmm. as we move towards electrify everything, right, which is pretty much how we do it in passive houses, you take advantage of everything that you can naturally, then you have a little bit of electric that makes up the difference between it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the 150 CFM range hood on an induction range is probably Okay. You know, I mean, if you go back and you listen to the BS and beer show where they talk about kitchen ventilation, uh, you might never cook indoors ever again. But aside from that, <laughs> you're like, don't burn anything, uh, don't have gas. And uh, you know, they also we also did another one recently about intentional indoor fires, right? And so so like what you need for makeup air if you're going to have some kind of combustion source inside your house. Like it's crazy. And no, you can't use your ERV to do it, right? Uh, obviously, here with the 150 CFM fan and an induction cooktop, and you're not cooking greasy, garlicky food, you know, fish every day. 
yeah, you're probably good. And that's actually really cool uh, that you can do that. I had not heard that before. So that was great, you know, but if you're, if you're getting up anything above that, you need to have makeup air, you need to have, uh, you need to be working on all the other reasons why you're not healthy inside your home because of the things that you're doing in there. So although I will say you took all the romance out of a fireplace when you said intentional interior fire. (laughs) Yeah. Intentional indoor fires. It it is the, the, the romance of your fireplace should be enjoyed. Uh, on your porch. In your yard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have two specialties, which is, you know, uh, high performance homes, right? That's what I do in design. Um, but we also have a lot of water here uh, in Maine. And so the people have seasonal camps on these and they say, oh, I want to put in a fireplace. And I'm like, okay, great. It's got to have a glass door, meet all the EPA requirements. It's got to have its own, you know, makeup air system directly to it, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, you just ruined it. Like we wanted this big old open hearth fireplace. I'm like, well, too bad. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And you can't, I mean, if that thing's going to be running for three hours in the evening and drawing, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 Pascals, that's, you know, it's basically performing a blow, trying to perform a blower door test on your house. And of course, an airtight house won't provide the draft through a fireplace. And a leaky house defeats the purpose of what we're doing when we're not running a fireplace to save energy and enhance comfort. So it is a quandary for sure. There are some good sealed combustion units, but um, it's a thorny issue for sure. Oh yeah. And, and the intentional indoor uh, and the quote that I was just saying too, was uh, presented by Sonia Barantes and they were actually doing uh, indoor air quality testing for something else unrelated. And they had this fireplace. And so they actually got data um, not that they were intentionally trying to, but then they could see is that like at 10 o'clock when they would go to bed and the fire would die down is when all of a sudden they'd have this huge spike in indoor air quality issues. And it was like, oh yeah, that's when it's no longer getting the draft that it needs and everything. And so, um, it is a huge quandary because we, as people love fire, right? It's just natural to love that. So we love, this is Maine. We love our wood stoves. You know, we love all of that stuff. And it's like a little bit, sketchy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I, you can't overlook the importance of uh, the commissioning thing that you talked about earlier. If you have a ERB tied to your ductwork of your heating and cooling system, and, and if you don't leave the blower running on the furnace all the time so that you maintain the same pressure conditions, whether there's ERB or not, um, or whether it's heating or not, then you could throw the house into imbalance just at the time when those embers are dying down and carbon monoxide is being dumped back into the house. So I think if people really need to understand that a standalone ventilation system that works all the time, whether you have heating or cooling active at that point or not, that's really the optimal way to do it. I understand there's additional expense to doing that and possibly replicating duct work where you're moving air, but uh, moving two different air streams, but it really is the optimal way to do it. I probably don't need to convince many people who listen to this podcast about that. So, but it's, it's pretty straightforward and, um, if you can plan it in advance, it's not so disruptive. Retrofits to houses that already have been drywalled, that certainly is disruptive, but it's disruptive whether you're putting in air conditioning when you didn't once have it either so, or as well. So it, it's planning is everything, right? Planning is everything. So while we're talking about it and while we're in the weeds, let's talk a little bit about commissioning. Um, how do you commission your systems? And you know what are some of the tools that you guys take with you to make sure that your systems are properly uh, commissioned? Sure. So what I'll do is I'll describe um, how the commissioning process works for the ERVs that almost everybody knows that Zender has, those gray Comfortware units. And then I'll talk about a separate, slightly different mode for our newer Q350, Q450, and Q600 procedure, which takes some of the uh, uh, time out of doing it. So the most important thing to do when you're running an ERV, the reason you commission it is to make sure that it runs in balanced mode. When you have independent controls of the supply and return fans, that means that if you have different pressure conditions in the return system of the ductwork, the static pressure from all the elbows and lengths of run for supply and return, those are rarely identical. So if you can't adjust your ERV and you just have a pair of fans that both work at the same speed, there's no guarantee that the system is in balance unless you walk around closing valves in some of the rooms, creating more resistance to movement of air so that you can adjust the two. To me, it seems like not a good idea to control the airflow only at the room. That is to stop the air 
from coming in while leaving the fan running at a higher speed. It's nice to be able to minimize fan electric consumption by, <clears throat> excuse me, by measuring all the air flows at each of the rooms. And at the most distant location, if you have too much air there, don't just stop the valve down to increase resistance, turn the machine down, Lose, use less electricity. I mean, our units are so efficient in terms of watts per CFM, really for the uh, power delivered by a 60 watt light bulb can ventilate a lot of house, which is remarkable. So commissioning means measuring all the air flows at the individual rooms, making sure you have the minimum airflow that's required by codes and local standards out of bathrooms. That's typically 20 cubic feet per minute continuously. People might say that's low and it is low. It's not gonna immediately remove the steam off your mirror. But if you have a traditional exhaust only bath fan that you turn off when you leave the bathroom, there is zero ventilation happening. The remaining 23 hours till somebody takes a shower again, you're ventilating at a very low flow rate, but removing contaminants and moisture. So the damp towel left on the floor will have some help to dry out when you use continuous ventilation with an ERV. So once you get all the bathrooms uh, set to what the intended ventilation rate is so that you're not overventilating the building or underventilating it, you match that with su the supply air. Now, uh, generally there are calculations for how to do that, whether you're using Passive House Institute or FIAS guidelines or ASHRAE guidelines or the International Mechanical Code. Um, but those all establish certain fixed rates for continuous ventilation. Doing that and minimizing fan energy to me is, is critical. There's no reason to use excess fan energy. Doubling fan speed more than doubles the friction in a system, so it's fighting harder and using more electricity. So commissioning is simply a way to balance the air flows using as little fan energy as possible, delivering the optimum amount of air to the rooms that need to get, to get air to them. With the, Q, uh, with the uh, regular comfort units that we sell, that means running back and forth between the machine and the rooms, tweaking this and that to get the optim to optimize the airflow. In an average house, maybe it takes two hours, three hours to do that. With the new Q, that has uh, pressure sensors in the airstreams. And you can actually, when you start up a commissioning with the newer Q series, you start the commissioning wizard and it checks to see how much maximum airflow can be achieved in the building. And then you choose what airflow you want for each of those four speeds that I mentioned earlier, away, one, two, and three. So you've got away mode and boost mode and then two speeds in between. And you tell it what airflow you want it to choose. And you do a minimum amount of tweaking of the registers. You just have to make sure that you get the required airflow out of the bathrooms. It doesn't matter really whether you have 18 CFM supplier into a bedroom or 21 CFM going into a bedroom. Those are both adequate. The codes require specific exhaust rates out of specific rooms, but from the supply standpoint, it's looked at from the whole house, okay? So that means that in a bedroom, you might have a supply register, but a living room just outside that bedroom may not need a supply register. Why is that? Presumably by day, most people are not sleeping in their bedroom. And so the supply air that's delivered to the bedrooms is fresh and leaves the bedroom relatively uncontaminated by CO2 because nobody's sleeping in there. It may be taking teenager sock smell with it, but, um, but generally it's supplying fresh air to the living space. So you don't need a supply register in all living spaces unless there are doors that close it off from the space. So this procedure or this, this pathway of air going supply into the bedrooms, leaving the bedrooms, flushing living areas and on their way to the bathrooms and kitchens is called the cascade effect. At night, when people presumably are in their bedrooms generating CO2, air is being flushed out of those rooms, taking the CO2 away from that and through presumably unoccupied rooms. Of course, teenagers might be up at night and parents sleeping, but it works generally to do that. So you don't need a supply register in every room, but you do need a return in every plumbing space like a laundry, bathroom, kitchen. So then question, if you lose power, right? So we live in the Northeast, mm -hmm. sometimes we lose power. Yep. Does the system need to be recommissioned or will it remember its previous presets? It will remember its previous presets. It, I think it used to be like if you lost power for a month, then the, the battery in the controller would forget the settings. But now there's no reason it, it would totally remember that. Now, if you add some bedrooms or increase the scope or uh, go from a regular F7 
uh, MERV 13 filter to additional charcoal filtration or MERV 15, almost not quite HEPA. But if you increase the resistance to air movement on one side or the other of the system, you definitely should look into recommissioning that because if you add more resistance on the supply side because of additional filtration to eliminate wildfire smoke or pollen in the air, things like that, and, and you don't change the fan, there'll be relatively more exhaust air than there is supply air. And now your fireplace place is backdrafting. I'm sorry, your interior indoor intentional fire. So that can be a, <laughs> that can be a bad thing. Um, with the Q, however, it, those pressure sensors can sense when there has been an imbalance and it's always trying to adjust to keep in balance. So it's quite, without this seeming like a infomercial, it's quite a, quite a machine. Well, that's great because that's actually uh, one of the things that we've talked about, right, is oftentimes people will ask us about indoor air quality monitors, right? And so previously our ventilation systems hadn't quite been doing this. I think it does it a little bit more in the bigger commercial systems, but in the residential systems, we haven't been able to monitor the air quality or the pressure in the tube. So it sounds like you're really moving towards that in a, in a way, right? It might start with just pressure and you, you have CO2, I think has been something that you've kind of always been able to do, but, you know, as we get better with different air quality, uh, sensors within our systems, I think that it'll, it'll, it's going to be great what the technology can do. Cause it's going to be, not only will it sense a pressure drop or something, but it'll also, uh, sense, you know, some kind of air quality issue that you might have and say like, okay, Hey, we need to bump up the ventilation speed here because we're having, we're experiencing, we're sensing some kind of issue, yep. but you brought up a really valid point too, which is that your system is designed for a certain flow rate. You can't just change the filter with no, with no, ramifications to that, you know, whether you need to have it recommissioned or whether the system itself, you know, you, you talked about, um, what happens with it, but the system itself is going to have to work harder to force that air through. And so you could be damaging your system, which, you know, if you spend a lot of money to put one of these in, you don't want to damage your system by running that. And I know that you, we've talked about the possibility of putting uh, higher filtration in in wildfire country for a short period of time during wildfire season. Uh, obviously, that makes sense, and you probably aren't going to totally wear out your system. But if you forget to take that out and it runs that way for you know a long period of time, you could be really damaging your system. So yeah, I, I see that less with uh, intake filters because, after all, our systems are designed to have extremely high levels of uh, filtration in them and to overcome the static pressure that has those, but with respect to like the outside grills that are on the side of the house or on the roof, you can't put an insect screen on them. I mean, in Europe, they don't put insect screens because there aren't really mosquitoes. And so the one centimeter mesh is adequate to keep critters out or vermin, we call it, out of the system. And then there's no nothing else coming in. I have seen in New England where people have said, you know, I'm starting to see a few mosquitoes on the fresh air intake filter. Why don't I put a bug screen on that grill? Well, after about three months, enough leaf particulate matter and pollen and grass cuttings started to make this fine mat on the fresh air intake. If you don't have a system that responds to that and ramps up the speed, which would then further the problem, um, you're going to go into an imbalanced mode. So have I solved that problem? No, we have mosquitoes. We, you have to kind of pay attention to it. And maybe, maybe it's unrealistic to think that people who don't change their vacuum cleaner filter are going to change their ERV filter. But in a perfect world, you would address that. <laughs> yeah, you know, you brought up another one of my hot pot yeah. buttons, which is um, I'm a huge proponent for having a QR code in the mechanical space that you put on your phone uh, that you can just click on it and it automatically adds service dates to your calendar or whatever gives you all the manufacturers in information on the systems that you have right because nobody buys a new car and then does no maintenance with it right like you would never do that because we just have been conditioned to understand that 
have a gasoline powered car that has to have the oil changed. It's got to have the brakes done. It's got to have, you know, there are maintenance things that happen. And I mean, you get a user manual, um, used to get it in the glove box. A lot of them are gone online now. Right. And that says, you know, at such and such thousand miles, you need to do it. You go to the service tech and they say every 5,000 miles, you need to come back and they put the sticker on the window and you don't, you know, yeah, sure. Maybe you forget for a little bit of time or you drive over or whatever, but you have that conditioned in your head that you're like, I have a car, I have a vehicle, I have to maintain it. You know, we don't do that with our houses. Like the whole idea of zero maintenance and not having to do anything with any of the systems is mind boggling to me. You have to, you have to do things with them. <laughs> so I remember, uh, user's some... manual. So good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it is a cultural thing. I'm sure it's not that intimidating to change filters on an ERV, but something about, I mean, in the German speaking countries in Europe, where Zender is like really popular supermarket leader, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, people just wouldn't tolerate a system that doesn't work that well. And they're constantly, you know, maintaining things. I remember reading some funny adage, um, practice preventative maintenance on car teeth relationships. Um, and so maybe we should add ERV uh, to that. We should. It doesn't take much to, to, um, to look after it and make it work properly. And, um, but the problem is, you know, when your heat doesn't work, you know it. If in the summertime you want to have your windows open and your ventilation system died a month before that, you might not know it, except maybe your bathroom, the moisture doesn't leave as quickly. I guess you'd know it un under those circumstances, but um, you know it when it's bad. Just before we started recording, we talked about like, you can tell it's fresh, but then you kind of lose track of that. You don't smell anything and just it feels like my house. It just it's, it smells great, you know, and I can get rid of odors and moisture by hitting the boost switch if there's ever a spike in or what we call a high pollution event. Um, so, and just like you can't see your insulation, you, you can't tell that it's working, but you know that it's working. And if it wasn't working, it would be cold. If you had single glazed windows in Maine in winter, your sill is going to rot after three years because of all the condensation that drips down onto the inside of your uh, window stool like right here where I am right now. So um, yeah, maintenance is critical and it's just having an ERV does not mean you have balanced ventilation. You do have to look after it. You do have to, but it's not much. It's, you know, a maintenance schedule. Our new comfort control app does have timely reminders to, um, to explore that. Emily, can you hear the car honking in the background? I can. Sorry. <laughs> That's why I got up earlier to close the uh, to close the the door in my office because um, I live on the water also and there's a boat builder across the street and I don't know what they were doing but they were making quite a racket. We can that out hopefully. Um, Good thing we're not live. Yeah, well, we can chop this whole section out. Yeah. Not a big deal. <laughs> How much time do you put into editing? Um, it depends. Yeah. Uh, you know, like if we're just going along and everything goes pretty well, um, and nobody says anything or has an issue, you know, I've had people have to like jump up and grab a call, tell someone to be quiet, you know, do yeah. whatever I cut that yeah. out. But, um, yeah. but if I, if I, when I first started and I was new to this, I used to listen to the whole thing again. Um, I've gotten better as you probably have noticed that I'll nod at you or I'll give you a thumbs up. So I don't have to cut out every time it's like interrupting. Cause there's some, conversational parts that don't translate well to the audio version, yeah, but yeah. I don't spend a ton of time anymore, uh, on it. Cause I'm it's impressive. And I, 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 I see myself as somebody who can be articulate about the subject matter because I know it. And then when I listen back, I feel like I'm speaking at a breakneck speed, but it's, I don't, I guess I don't, I think at the same speed I talk and therefore slowing down my talking would make it very difficult to get the point across <laughs> so, for me because my mind has gone elsewhere so anyway you want to go back to it or yeah let's yeah. let's get back to it so uh we were talking a little bit about uh some of those conditions that you have with your windows open um which brought up another thing that um reminded me you said if you turn it off for a month, it might not remember the presets. So in summertime in places like Maine, where maybe we aren't having uh, humidity or it's September, it's gorgeous, right? Everybody has their windows open. 
do we tell people not to turn off the ERV, like leave it on low level ventilation all the time, isn't going to hurt it. Or do we want to take advantage of, you know, not using excess energy, uh, while we have the ability for nighttime cooling and windows to be open and things like that. So if you make the choice to not run your ERV, um, when the weather is beautiful during shoulder seasons or whenever you choose to do that, the worst thing that can happen is that if you really wanted your bathrooms to evacuate moisture and steam and odors quickly, that won't happen unless the windows are open in the bathroom. And so it really is not much of a problem. That said, when you run your system at a very low speed, just like doubling fan speed more than doubles the friction, halving or reducing the fan speed has a big impact on, on saving electrical energy to push the air where it needs to go. So leaving it running at a very low flow rate, I mean, anyone who can afford a custom house can afford the pennies of operation to run an ERV during the day um, or day in, day out. So like I said, a, a 60 watt uh, power input is not much energy at the end of the day. And if you then run it at a low speed and you're only running it at 15 or 20 watts, and that's like a, an oven light bulb. Um, so, so I wouldn't worry about it so much. I mean, an enormous house that has three huge ERVs, there probably is energy to be saved by turning them all off. But it's important to know, I mean, Zender's ERVs don't have off switches. <laughs> they simply don't have, you plug them in and they are on. So those who wish to have control of that, you either yank the plug out of the wall or come up with a switching or circuit uh, situation to do that. But I don't run my ERV year round. It's it's okay to to turn it off when the weather, I mean, coastal living in the Cape Ann, Massachusetts, it's very pleasant a lot of the time. I will also say that in, as, as does up there in the evening, it can get real cool. Even in August, all of a sudden you can get a low 60s, high 50s night. So you're not always using your windows, but at that point your house is so, the CO2 level is so low it's virtually what the outside levels are, 450 parts per million, that you may not need the ERV to crank up for till the next day. So it's it's not as taboo as people might think it is. So, so as far as controls go for that, do you have to control everything from the unit itself, or is there a wall control somewhere in the house which says like I want to run it on this, like we're going away, or we're um, you know we're gonna be um, having a party and we know we, we need to boost it. Obviously boost mode must appear in each bathroom so that you can hit the button, right. Yeah, and yeah. turn boost on after you've taken a shower. Cause it'd be really inconvenient if you had to go to your mechanical room every time right? yeah, people yeah. would never do that. So, sure. so how do the controls work? Uh, sure. So um, with the non Q series, there's a main controller that you must have located in a central look. I mean, you can put it anywhere. You can put that in the mechanical room. But it's gonna. It has a little clock on it. Has a little indicator, graphic indicator of what the fan speed is, so that you'll know which of the four fan speeds it's on. And that is not a boost switch. If you put it into high speed, it's gonna stay on high speed. And I discourage, or I encourage people to pay attention to that. The main controller is something where you really are just sort of seeing. Oh, look, there's an indicator that says change your filters. Um, oh, it's telling me the time. Oh, I can control some of the modes, but um, the boost switch is a more, uh, put it in various locations. I turn it on before I take the shower, not after the shower, <laughs> if you think of it. And that's merely, it sends an impulse or completes a circuit back to the ERV. And when it's connected properly to the circuit board, it tells the ERV, oh, okay, the user wants boost mode. So I'm going to go on for 30 minutes. You can change it between two and two minutes and two hours. And, and run it at a higher speed and then go back to the previous speed. Again, we're always trying to save energy. So leaving it in high speed is very, very inefficient, um, both for heat recovery effectiveness, fan energy. So go back to the original rate that you, you originally wanted. But within the main controller, there's also ways to make um, weekly timers. So if it's a house where people work and go to school during the day, there is not a need for the ventilation rate to be as high as the ASHRAE rate says, that's during occupancy. So you can totally save energy, especially in places where energy is expensive, like Europe, New York City, um, any place where you're paying through the nose for kilowatt hours, you might as well lower the fan speed. So if you're into that, and just like a th programmable thermostat can save energy if you pay attention to it and use it properly, then by all means, um, do it. And then if the system ramps down at nine o'clock after everyone leaves to go to work, 
and is off until or on low speed until three o'clock, you've saved that many pennies, but it adds up. So that's that's really good. So controls can be really sophisticated. They can be quite basic. We do now have a, a Wi-Fi control that not only gives you all that functionality of boost, you can do it from afar. Now, I'm not an enormous advocate of playing with the ventilation system when you're at your home and it's at your country house. I mean, it's nice, but you don't really need to do that. But the other cool thing is that there's indicators about how many BTUs uh, you've saved over a time period. So you can compare what the effectiveness of the Zender ERV and using heat recovery and how much avoided oil or uh, electricity you've used to reheat or cool the air. That's kind of a neat uh, function. And reminders to change your filters, pressing a button to get contact for service. So it's it's really, it's quite something. So. That's in there for all of us uh, super nerdy people, right? Mm -hmm. That need to know all of that. It's funny. Someone said yeah. something to me about our, our um, electricity usage or grid or, or whatever the other day. And I was like, oh no, I have like a whole spreadsheet. I know, you know, the BTU usage. I know <laughs> this is, I have an energy model of my whole house. We bought an existing house. Um, and so they were, they just kind of looked at me like I had three heads and I was like, don't worry about it. I was like, I'm really into this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's because it's not painful enough. Most people don't pay attention to it. You know, right. they, most people just, they can afford it. It's not that big a deal. Um, so it's, uh, it doesn't take a ton of energy to run these things. You're just pushing a, a relative trickle of air compared to your heating and cooling systems. And so that said, because you're constantly bringing fresh air in year round, when you look at doing heat loss calculations in low load homes, ventilation losses are the biggest thing you have to overcome um, in terms of heat loss. Domestic hot water is still a big issue because that doesn't change simply because you have a passive house. But with respect to the ventilation losses, if you're using a product that only recovers 50% of the energy difference between inside and out compared to 90%, you can hit a lot of um, targets like Pretty Good House and FIAS uh, certification and PHI certification. That's why there are minimum efficiencies uh, just to save energy and not just save energy. Really low effectiveness means that cold air can cause resilience problems as, the, as it comes into your building. So, so minimum effectiveness is, is an important way to make sure that you're both saving energy um, and having a comfortable, resilient interior. Yeah. I think that's really important. And actually that's a great place to, to kind of wrap up for today. I try to keep these at about an hour so that I keep everyone's interest. Um, but that was a great way to kind of end the importance of why we do this and, and what we've been doing. And I appreciate you coming on and talking more about Zender, but it, you know, obviously you work for Zender, but across the board, really just talking about ventilation, how it works and why we do it and why that's so critical now. So I appreciate the time that you spent today. Um, going through things with, uh, our audience, I will put your bio and information up in the show notes so people can reach out to you directly if they want to know more or have questions about installing Zenders in their own, uh, either projects they're building or projects that they, uh, want to design or build. So thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I will end with one last thing. And that is if you need a design for your system, it doesn't have to be a mystery to you. We do ventilation designs for all residential projects. So you just have to reach out and contact us and we'll turn a design around for you and a quote for all the components that go in a system. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.